Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, good morning. We want to continue our uh, Easter tour because, you know, we just fly by Easter so quickly, it's like, gone. And so instead of just flying by it, we thought, let's take a tour of it. So we began with the week before Easter. And then we talked about the morning of Easter. And last week we talked about the uh, two weeks that followed Easter. But today we talk about, is there going to be another Easter? Do you remember that uh, quote? I have fantasies You remember things I say. And it's usually it's my deep dreams. But remember we ended with that quote that we live between two Easter's. And in the power of the first, we move to the realization of the second. What in the world is that all about? There's an Easter coming for us. And it has everything to do with today. So pray with me. That Spirit of God would open this up to your mind and your heart. Heavenly Father, we gather here in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is all about Him. And Lord Jesus, you're going to return. And when you return, that's going to change us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just open up our hearts, our minds, and help, Lord, use me to give clarity from your word. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, the night before Jesus is crucified, he, he's with the boys. He, he's going to be arrested in about four hours, tortured in about five, six hours, crucified maybe about seven, eight hours later. This is not a time he's blowing smoke. And so he's with his men. And there he makes a promise. In John 14, the first three verses, he looks at them and he says, let not your heart be troubled. See, they thought he was going to blow up Rome and set up a Jewish kingdom and they'd be the big dogs. And now he's talking about he's going to be crucified. So they're all depressed. And so he looks at them and he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you will be also. And then in verses 18 and 19, he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Because I live, you're going to live also. You know, John really picked up on this, uh, you with me. I go to prepare a place. And this place is where you are going to be with me. If you ever study the book of Revelation, he's talking about the new Jerusalem. But that's a whole other message. But in his letter, 1 John, later, John would write this in the first few verses of chapter 3. Again, remembering what Jesus said that night, reflecting on you with me. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. Now, for this reason, the world does not know us. <laughs> go out and tell some of you are a child of God and watch them go cross-eyed. So the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. 
we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And when we have this hope, we purify ourselves as he is pure. What is that supposed to look like? When he appears, we're going to be like him. Nobody knows we're children of God. A lot of us hide it pretty well. But when he appears, there'll be no question. It'll be very apparent we're children of God because we're going to experience something that's going to make us like him. Well, well, the Apostle Paul, he basically picks up on this. And he writes this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, his resurrected body, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The very power he had to create the heavens and the earth, he's going to use it to make some change in us, in our bodies, conforming those bodies to the very glorified body of Jesus Christ. Now, he writes this letter to the Philippians. They live in Philippi, which is a colony of Rome, the Roman Empire. The registry of its citizens was kept in Rome. Rome was the mother city. And as a citizen of Rome, you lived in Philippi, but you were a Roman citizen. Therefore, you lived out the dignity and the model and the principles of your mother city, Rome. Paul reminds us right here that we live in a colony called Earth, called Arizona, called Scottsdale. So we live in a colony, but our city, our citizenship is where? I didn't hear you. In heaven. So therefore, that's the mother city. And the distinctives of our life are therefore going to be different than most who are not citizens of heaven. See, we reflect the dignity of our kingdom, the kingdom that's led by Jesus Christ. That's why even the Lord's Prayer, like I've said before, we all recite the Lord's Prayer. Do you ever pray the Lord's Prayer? Father, I just want to honor, hallow your name. And, and, and I, want, I want today to live out your kingdom as on earth as it is in the heavens. That is, I want to honor the King, Jesus Christ, today because I want everything I do to be your will. That's the first half of the Lord's Prayer. And we pray that, that drives us because our citizenship, the mother city, I didn't say the mothership, all right? Don't get me weird here. But the mother city is in heaven. That's why Paul calls us ambassadors in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Peter calls us aliens in 1 Peter 2.11. Remember the little song we sang as little kids if you grew up in the church? I did. I grew up Southern Baptist. Had the hell scared out of me every week. But I do remember the song, This World Is Not My Home. You know, C.S. Lewis picked up on that. And he wrote this, If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that 
I was made for another world. Ever get the feeling maybe we just don't fit? Strangest verse in the Bible. It's got to be Psalm 116. Because in Psalm 116, the psalmist writes, Precious in the sight of God is the death of his righteous ones. That sounds like a horrible verse. You're telling me the day that I lose somebody that I love, um, a child, uh, a spouse, that, that the day that I lose somebody and they die, and that somehow is precious in the sight of God, that is so wrong. Unless God knows and has some perspective about death and life after death that apparently I don't have. John records a very interesting account and the account is the death of his friend. Jesus had the disciples, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, but he had a personal friend named Lazarus. And in John 11, he's up north, and he hears that his friend Lazarus is sick. This is all in John chapter 11. Jesus is a good four days away. And then finally he hears that his friend dies. Now the remarkable thing is Jesus hears his friend is sick. And he doesn't do anything. He doesn't go down there until after he hears that his friend is dead. Then he gets up, guys, let's go. And he travels the four days. And so Lazarus, the body of Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. In, in the words of Martha, he stinketh. <laughs> Things aren't going well. But you have this account in John 11. And it's interesting because Mary... She, when he arrives four days later, uh, he's in the tomb. Mary is in the home doing the customary thing, you know, greeting mourners. And back then you had even hired mourners. People would just cry and mourn and weep with you. But Martha, Martha, Mary's sister, Martha, ha, what is she about? I don't know, 6'2", 240 pounds. I mean, Martha, she's out there at the outskirts of the city Here's Jesus is coming, and she's ticked. And finally, when she, Jesus arrives, she says, where were you? You heal all these other people, and here's your friend. And you heard, we sent a message to you that your friend was sick. You did nothing. And now you show up four days late. He's been dead in the tomb for four days. And it was in that context, Jesus says the most remarkable thing. Martha, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live, even if he dies. For whoever believes in me shall not ultimately die. Now, is Jesus losing it here? He says, I am the resurrection. That's Easter. And the life. And he who believes in me shall not die die well if he's losing it that's one thing but what does he proceed to do the next 15 minutes he goes to the tomb and he cries out what Lazarus come forth apparently he had to say Lazarus or everybody would have come forth <laughs> Lazarus come forth and all of a sudden here's this guy now he's all wrapped up I mean it's kind of I would like to have been there to see that one as he hops out like, you know, a wrapped moth. And then because he was wrapped, because he, he, Jesus says, unwrap him. And there he is, alive. 
Now, does this have anything to do with us? Well, later on, Jesus, at that night, he is arrested. He is, therefore, tortured, crucified. And we have the account in Luke 23. There is Jesus on the cross. And he's got these two knuckleheads on either side, two thieves. And they're bantering back and forth. Jesus, if you are the Son of God, get us out of here. Finally, the one thief shuts up this other guy. And he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, you remember me. Will you remember me when you come in someday, when you come into your kingdom? And what is the first words out of Jesus' mouth? The first words. Today. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 9, he says, you know this body is like a tent. You don't move into a tent to live for 50 years. And this tent is taken down. But Paul says when this tent is taken down, your body is taken down, you do not cease to exist. You'll not be left naked. And that's when he says the most remarkable thing. For God's given you the Holy Spirit as a pledge. The word is engagement ring. So you've got the Spirit of God that's made your spirit, your soul alive. But what happens when the tent's taken down? When the body dies? And that's when you have that verse 7 and 8. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. With me, today. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Later on, Philippians chapter 1. Here Paul's, uh, he's in prison or house arrest, and, and he knows he's probably going to end up losing his head on this thing. And that's when he says, for me to live is Christ. All but die is what? Gain. How could dying ever be gain? Next verse. For to depart and be with Christ. Today. To be with Christ, with him, in that place, he says, is far better. You know, you see an interesting thing in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, you start with these, what's called the sealed judgments. There's seven of them. The seventh one really consists of the trumpet judgments, and we won't go there. But the fifth, number five, and what the sealed judgments are all about, if you read them there in chapter uh, 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 six of Revelation, there's nothing supernatural going on. You see, like Paul says in Romans 1, he gave them over, he gave them over, he gave them over to the consequences of their sin and depraved minds. Additionally, people ask me, do you believe we're under the judgment of God? You know, the initial judgment of God is God removing his hand of protection and letting us live out the consequences of our foolishness. Well, in Revelation, when he begins to remove formally his protection, and man lives out the consequences of his wars, and his murder, and his gain, and those are the, judge, uh, the sealed judgments, you've you got to blame somebody, right? And in the world, normally, when things go south, who gets the blame, historically? Nero? Burns down Rome, who gets the blame? Christians throughout history have always got the blame. It's going to happen just like that in the future. But in Revelation chapter 6, you have a very interesting statement. So here we are, and this is the fifth judgment, persecution against Christians. Christians are being murdered, killed. So where do they go when they're killed? 
their body is martyred. Verse 9, Revelation 6. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls, not the bodies. Bodies are dead, back to dust. I saw the souls of those who had been slain, martyred, because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord? Saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. Boy, there's some substance there to the soul, or put a robe on it, it's falling to the ground, right? So some's holding the pick and robe up. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Now you know what's interesting about this? Just like Paul said, absent from the body, present with the Lord, there you got a picture of it. They're with the Lord. Although what kicks me is their first day in heaven, they're complaining. <laughs> I don't get it. But anyhow, it was to be part of, never mind. The point being is that what they're complaining about is, Lord, when will you, justice, justice, when will you bring judgment upon those who murdered us? And the remarkable thing is this. They remember. You see, your consciousness there, there, there's there's a, a, a term called Cartesian Dilemma. If you're ever talking to an atheist or you're in university, whatever, ask this one question. I understand Darwinian. I understand evolution. But answer me this. From where? Now, they will not call the soul. They'll not acknowledge you have a soul. They say you have consciousness. Fine. How did consciousness develop? From where did consciousness? That's self-awareness. That's memory. That's choice. How do you get that from amino acids? And here's the good news. None of them have an answer for it. That's why it's called the Cartesian Dilemma. But the point is this. It is not your body that's going to have memory. It is your soul. So even when your body dies, your consciousness, your soul, your memory, apparently is all within that which they take with them in their soul. And so as these verses speak of the souls, those souls are only released after the body is put to death. Solomon, the wisest man ever lived. I mean, Solomon, the guy lived a fantasy life like we've talked about before. He's king. Nobody pushes him around. Gold, silver, richest man in the world. Double portion of wisdom. He's got 700 wives, 300 concubines. We won't go any further than that. The point is, the guy's living out of fantasy. He comes to about my age, and he writes a journal. It's called Ecclesiastes. And he says, let me tell you what I learned. And I'd be interested what this guy had to say that he learned. And it simply says at the very end, chapter 12. And like I told you before, if you're over 65, don't read chapter 12. It's written really to you younger people to tell you, enjoy your life, because it doesn't get better. And he has this horrible description of aging. Everything's falling off, and what doesn't fall off doesn't work anyway. And you just sit there, go, and then it ends with you die. But then at least there's a positive, and it says when you die, 
At that moment, it says your body goes and returns to dust, but your soul, your spirit, what? Returns to the one who gave it. When did he give it? Oh, back in Genesis 2-7. God took dust, dirt, and it says he breathed into man, and man became a living nephish. You want to know somewhere in conception, apparently somewhere at conception, God breathed and breathed the soul, consciousness, life into every one of us when we were yet in our mother's womb. And so here, the body dies, goes back to dust, but even Solomon acknowledges. But when, when, when? So is this a resurrection of a new body? Is this a second Easter? So again, Paul says in Philippians that we shall be transformed. The body of our humble state that goes back to dust will be transformed into conformity with a body according to his resurrection. Boy, what's that going to be like? You know, Paul, writing to the Greeks, they didn't really believe in a physical resurrection, just a, a spiritual resurrection. And Paul takes 1 Corinthians 15, and he's so careful, like verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. Yes, yeah, body's going back to dust. Some of us look a little more dusty than others, but we're, we're returning to dust. It is raised imperishable. It means it cannot die. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. Paul says, you all acknowledge a natural body because you got one. You struggle with believing that there's going to be another body, a spiritual body. So also, he says, it is written, first man, Adam, became a living soul. Last, Adam became a life-giving spirit. That was Christ. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. Watch this. The first man is from the earth, earthy. That's this body we have wrapped around this soul. He says, the second man is from heaven and is the earthly, so also those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy dust, this body, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly, the resurrected body, the glorified body of Christ. That's why he says in the next verse 50, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Because I tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep, but we will be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we'll be changed from a body made of dust, wrapped in a body that is made of some substance of heaven. Now notice it says flesh and blood, not inherit the kingdom of God. You know what's interesting to me? Here's Luke. He's a doctor. And in Luke 24, we have Luke's count. Jesus has been crucified. He's been buried. It's been over three days. And, 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 and the apostles are locked up in this room. Why? Because they're scared to death that their leader just three, four days ago was crucified. Rome's going to come after them. 
So they're locked up. And all of a sudden it says, not that he knocked on the door or walked through the wall, all of a sudden like walking from one dimension into another dimension, Jesus was standing in their midst. And I love Jesus says, do not be afraid. Uh, see, normally they would wet their tunic. I mean, come on, you know. All of a sudden, there he is. And then they, it says, and they were fearful because they thought they saw a ghost, a spirit. Now listen to what Jesus says. He's now in this resurrected, glorified body. Listen to what he says. I'm not a ghost. For a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. Interesting, normally you expect him to say what? Flesh and blood. But here Paul said flesh and blood do not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Think it through with me. Blood. What's the whole purpose of blood? It goes through your lungs, picks up some oxygen, and takes oxygen to every picking little cell in your body. And if that cell doesn't get a little oxygen, it dies. And as it dies, you start looking like some of us. So the point being is about what if I now have molecular structure? What if I have substance, skin, cells that are from a substance from heaven, not from earth, does not go back to dust, therefore cannot die, imperishable? Do I need blood? Absolutely not. And that's why he says flesh and blood not will inherit. We need the blood for this body because this body is made of cells that are basically perishable, will die without oxygen. But if we have this body conformed to the resurrected body of Christ, and Jesus says, I'm not a ghost, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone. You've got to have the bone to hold up the flesh. But then he says, my favorite verse in the Bible. Then this glorified Jesus, glorified body, looks around and he says, do you have anything to eat? We get to eat! And forget calories and all that other stuff. This is a body that can take food, process food. I don't understand from there. But the fact is, there's going to be this resurrected body. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. Talks about it again in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 when he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. But when the Lord returns, even those who are alive at the time shall experience this change. And those who have died, well, wait a second. How is this even possible? I mean, people have died, Christians died for 2,000 years. They're all over the place. What about those who are buried at sea? So they're there, and their body is committed to the ocean, and they're buried at sea. And little Charlie Tuna eats them up. And then we like tuna fish sandwiches, so we eat a little Charlie Tuna, and we got a little Frank in all of us. And you kind of wonder, how does he figure that all out? Well, remember Psalm 139. Who was weaving you in your mother's womb? Who's got the blueprint? Who remembers exactly? But here's the, the idea of your body. That's just a wrapping. That's not the point. The point is, where is your full memory, consciousness, your personality? You. You're with Christ in the New Jerusalem. Until there's this change. Well, when does this change take place? Well, I like it the way Paul puts in 1 Corinthians 15, just puts it right out there. And that's when Paul just simply says, 
But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Who's the first person to be raised in a glorified body? It was Jesus. Yeah, but he raised Lazarus. He raised the, the daughter of Jairus. He, he, there's others. Yeah, but they were not raised in glorified bodies. They died again. First fruit, first person to be raised in a glorified body that that body would never, ever degenerate and die again was Jesus Christ. And then it says, and then after that comes those who belong to him. When does this change? Now here's the picture. Is this a little schizo? Now, am I raised from the dead, but my soul is in heaven, and we kind of meet up somewhere and have a cup of coffee? That's schizophrenia. It makes no sense. No. When Jesus returns, it's an interesting picture. And, and, and the picture is basically this. The, uh, the Romans, when they would return after a great victory, they would camp out about a mile outside the city of Rome. And they sent messengers in to let them know the general's victorious and we're coming with all the stuff to celebrate the victory. And it would give them a few days because an ark of triumph had to be built and the city would prepare for the return of the victorious general. It's the exact same picture Paul uses in Ephesians 4 describing Jesus returning to heaven. It's the exact same picture used in Revelation 19 of Jesus returning to this earth. And what happens when Jesus returns? That's when we, that's after the Bema seat, and that's when we receive this glorified body. Our souls that have been with Christ will now be instantly wrapped with these glorified bodies just like he did the first time. What's interesting about this is also the fact that when we receive these glorified bodies at the coming of Christ, we return with him. Do you know, if you ever go to a, a traditional cemetery, you will see that all the gravestones of a traditional cemetery all face the east. You know why? It's based on a tradition of Matthew 24. When Christ says he'll come as a thief and when he returns, he will come from the east. And all the headstones are facing east so at the resurrection, when Christ brings with him our souls, and then he reunites our souls with these glorified bodies that will come from the grave. That's what you have in Daniel chapter 12, verse uh, 1 and 2. The Old Testament saints, that's when they receive their glorified bodies. That's when we receive our glorified bodies. And so, therefore, there is this celebration. Paul says, stand firm. Remember, we shall, we're children of God now, but nobody really knows that. But when he returns, he will then at that point, we will return in our souls with him, but just prior to his coming, he'll reunite our souls and breathe our souls right back into these glorified bodies and they will be resurrected from, from the grave. That's Easter, friends. First body was mortal, destined to return to dust. But our resurrected bodies created by God Reunited with our souls at the second coming of Christ. That's preparing us for the new heaven and new earth. When Benjamin Franklin was a young man, he composed his own epitaph. Bright young man. 
He wrote, The body of B. Franklin printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. <laughs> but the work shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, corrected and improved. Now, it's a shame that Benjamin Franklin did lose his faith later in his life. And you read him as an old man, and he's struggling. But that wasn't the truth for Victor Hugo. Remember Les Miserables? He wrote this. For half a century, I have been writing my thoughts in prose and in verse. But I feel I have not said the thousandth part of what is in me. When I do go to the grave, I can say, like many others, I've finished my day's work. But I cannot say I've finished my life. My day's work will begin the next morning. The tomb is not a blind alley. It is a thoroughfare. It closes on the twilight. It opens on the dawn. It was Job in the most ancient book who said, If a man dies, will he live again? And then he answers that in the book of Job. All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. And what change is he talking about? He's talking about what was even promised in Isaiah 26, verse 19. When even in the Old Testament, and their corpse shall rise from the graves at the coming of the Lord. And so you see why the resurrection of a body this body, this, this right now, my soul is wrapped in this body that's perishable and it is dying. And it will return to the dust. But my person, my memory, my consciousness, who I am is not in this dust. That will go back to the dust. I instantly go into the presence of Christ. I am robed somehow. And I wait until the second coming of Christ. And when he comes, just like being camped out a mile outside the city of Rome, apparently there will then be this God breathing our souls, reuniting our souls with resurrected bodies, conformed to the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. And we'll be raised from the grave, pointing east. And why this resurrection of the body? It has everything to do with the new heaven and new earth. That's the question. Why? Why give us eternal life? Why go through the hassle of taking our soul and rewrapping it in a resurrected, glorified body at his coming when he introduces the new heaven and the new earth after the kingdom of Christ is established? Well, that has everything to do with what are we going to be doing in the new heaven, new earth? Not about playing harps. What are we going to be doing in these resurrected bodies? Ah, guess we need one more message. <laughs> is there going to be a new heaven, new earth? Is there a heaven? And is there a heaven, a, a new earth? And what are we going to be doing in the new heaven, new earth, that necessitated resurrected bodies wrap around an eternal soul so that whatever it's going to do, it's going to do it for a long, long, long time. This we'll discover next week. Unless you want to read ahead. Heavenly Father, 
thank you for this hope that our life does not just come to an end. But as Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even when his body goes back to dust. Lord, thank you that um, when we die, it's not a period. It's just a comma, and we're ready to move on. And because of this hope, Lord, it makes every day today very purposeful and significant because we're putting together our resumes even now on what it is we will be doing in the new heaven, new earth. So continue to teach us, Lord, and we continue to glorify you as our king. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. In the name of Christ we pray. God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.